From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Hello, and welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Amanda Rooney. And I'm Sophia Osborne. And we'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week on Terra Informa, Sophia will be reading us a piece that she recently wrote for the Taiyi, which is a Canadian independent online magazine. Sophia wrote about being on isolated Saturna Island in the worst storm of BC Hydro's history that rocked the West Coast this past December. So we'll chat about the piece, the future of dealing with these massive storms, and journalism. But before we get to that, here are some environmental news headlines. On January 31st, Canada's Supreme Court overturned a 2015 lower court decision regarding the Redwater case, ruling that the oil and gas company involved in this case, Redwater Energy, can't walk away from the cleanup costs of abandoning wells after claiming bankruptcy. Let's back up a little bit. Back in 2015, Redwater Energy Corporation went bankrupt. In the lower courts, Redwater's trustee argued that energy companies should be able to pay back their creditors before they financed the cleaning up of old oil and gas wells. The lower courts agreed with the trustee, meaning that energy companies were able to walk away from the old wells. The Orphan Well Association and the Alberta Energy Regulator appealed the lower court's decision, and the case ended up in the Supreme Court, where the previous ruling was overturned. So this means now that bankruptcy can't be used as a license to ignore environmental cleanup. Why is this a big deal? Well, Alberta has a lot of abandoned or orphaned wells. Recent numbers released by the Orphan Well Association show that there are 1,553 abandoned wells in the province that still need to be reclaimed. Sharon Riley, who you might remember from Sophia's interview about environmental investigative journalism that we aired earlier this year, she published a great walkthrough of the Redwater case for the Narwhal. You can find the link to that article along with Sophia's interview with Sharon Riley on our website at www.terrainforma.ca. In other news, the bodies of hundreds of dead guillemot birds have washed up on the shores of the Netherlands over the past month. It is estimated that 20,000 of the seafaring birds have died, and the cause of death is currently unknown. Hundreds of sick birds have been taken to sanctuaries for treatment, and dissections have been performed on the bodies of deceased birds to try and determine the cause of death. Biologist Mardik Leopold stated that the otherwise clean birds were, quote, skinny, with gut problems, which is indicative of starvation, end quote. One of the suggested causes of this mass casualty event is the loss of 291 containers from a container ship during a storm in early January. The contents of the lost containers is unknown. The guillemot are particularly sensitive to the pollution of the water with chemicals or plastics as they dive to forage for fish and crustaceans. Do you often think about how you can minimize your environmental footprint? Uh, But what about after death? A bill in Washington state has passed in the state Senate and is headed for the House. And if it passes there, it could make it legal to compost human remains in the state of Washington. A company called Recompose, founded by Katrina Spade, hopes to be able to offer 
people the choice to be turned into soil after they die, instead of being buried or cremated, both of which have pretty negative environmental impacts. Recompose has been working with the University of Washington to assess the safety of this composting process in terms of environmental and human health. The process is reported to use approximately one-eighth of the energy required for cremation. The Recompose founder states that burial and cremation must remain for those who prefer those methods, but that the composting of human remains will provide another option for those who are interested. So a little bit ago, at one of our weekly Terra Informa meetings, Sophia came to the meeting with some pretty exciting news. Yeah, so um, I was really excited because The Taiyi, which is an online news magazine that my dad and I have loved since it first started in Vancouver, um, I, I was actually at a, a journalism conference for students, and I met the founding editor, David Beers, and I talk to him a bit about this story that I'm going to read you all. Um, and he said it sounded really interesting and that I should pitch that to him. So I sent him an email about it. And um, yeah, it, it came out uh, January 28th. And it it was just so exciting. Um, the story is, is really intense, I think. But um, I think it really has an environmental message in there. So I, I wanted to share it with uh, all the Terra Informa listeners. Cool, and I'm so excited to hear it. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, I think this um, this story coming out on the Taiyi was probably one of the most exciting days of my burgeoning professional life. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was just so exciting to see the response. Um, and I got so many emails from people that I haven't talked to in so long, or like my dad's friends and people from my old church and everything like that congratulating me. So yeah. That's really nice. I, I also hope that some people who aren't my dad and all his friends read it. And I think I think they did. And there are lots of comments which are kind of disparaging of me, but I find them sort of hilarious. So we can talk about that maybe after the story. But just keep that in mind because I think the narrator in the piece is kind of interesting. And uh, you may not agree with her choices. <laughs> okay, so the piece is called Dad's World Was My Refuge Until the Windstorm Hit. That morning, I wake up too early. The walls are shaking. It sounds like the rest of the house has melted away, like my room is a ship in a storm. How can the wind be so loud? How can it rush through the room like a sieve? It's purple dark, and I'm more disoriented than ever. The beige comforter is swallowing me. I rush down the stairs in the chill. My dad's in the living room, his weathered face staring out the window at the sea. He chose this house for the view, the ocean and the San Juans, the rocky cliff, for the seclusion, out at the east tip of Saturna Island, for the roof he could cover in solar panels. Together, we watch the waves, so choppy their stark white, get tangled on the rocks. Mariners would call this a Force 10. It's Thursday, December 20th, 2018, the day of the worst windstorm in BC Hydro's history, the day I realized I could be blown off my feet. But in that moment, so early in the morning, it feels okay. It's exhilarating, even, to see the spray hit the windows, watch the wind sweep across the waves. My dad points to my cup on the table, the water inside it rippling. The house is shaking, he says. I've never seen anything like this. Are you worried, I ask? No, he replies quickly. It stood through so many storms. Here's what we don't know. 
The wind is blowing over 100 kilometers an hour, swirling to hit us from three directions. It won't stop for eight hours. The Gulf Islands will be the hardest hit. The shifting winds, high speeds, and 400 millimeters of rain that fell in the last few weeks is creating the perfect stew of conditions to uproot even healthy trees. Later, old timers on the island will tell us they haven't seen a storm this bad since the 70s. By the afternoon, the power is out. The inverter for my dad's backup battery isn't working, and we're not sure why. His solar panels are still hooked up to the grid, so they're no use to us now. We have no internet, no phone, no cell service. We're as far away from the ferry terminal as possible, as my dad preferred. He has only lived here four years. He's seen storms before, but they weren't like this. It's okay. We're supposed to leave the island to go to Vancouver for Christmas today anyway. We have a reservation on the 4.30 ferry. Is it running? We have no idea, but we have nothing better to do than drive over to the terminal with our suitcases, just in case. While we pack, my dad says, you know, I really admire how calm you're being about all this. It's very grown up. There's no use panicking, I say, carefully filling my water bottle only halfway. We're rationing what remains of the water pressure. As soon as I get outside, I'm shoved off balance, nearly knocked to the ground. The sky is blue, beautiful, but the trees are sideways. I look at my dad, but we don't say anything. As we roll out of the driveway, we see Cliffside Road. The pavement is a lawn of evergreen needles, a minefield of branches and downed power lines. The car crunches over them. Don't worry, my dad says hesitantly. There's no power. It's a calculated risk. I close my eyes, hold my breath before the tires make contact. This is the only road to the rest of the island, the ferry terminal, civilization. It's so narrow that what should be one lane is split in two, snaking between a cliff and the ocean. We drive on like this, my dad's hands at 10 and two, knuckles white, my eyes on the lines on his forehead, the way he squints in focus, then on the treetops above us that pitch back and forth. My dad calls this road the cathedral for the way the arbutuses arch over the pavement. When we pass under them, I feel transported to a world where life moves slower and there's nothing more important than the beauty of this island where the stress of life in Vancouver is cleansed to nothing. That's the feeling my dad was chasing when he moved here after he retired from law and teaching. The life he wanted when he put up his solar panels and bought his electric car. That's the life I want too, a lot of the time. Now, the cathedral is closing in on us. The trees lie in pieces on the road, jutting out like javelins. We dodge them, duck under them. We're getting close to the main route that will take us the length of Saturna. East Point Road. The sky is fading to dark and the trees are no longer trees, just black ghosts. I lose something with the light, any hope of getting off the island. How could the fairies be running? How had we ever thought they might be? It was then that we reached the final obstacle, the tree lying definitively across the road, blocking our path. My dad swears. There's no way the fairy is running anyway, I say quietly. Well, we can't get to it now. He turns the car around. I think of the beige comforter and the fire, and I like the idea of going home. On the way back, I notice every toppled tree that wasn't there before. They're everywhere. The car had felt safe, but now it's a slowly moving target. The wind catches up to us, and we get blocked again. Another tree hovering too low over the pavement. We're fenced in. Now what? My question hangs limp, quickly blown away. My dad just sits there, staring at the downed tree like he can lift it back up with the strength of his conviction. He opens the car door, gets out, pulls at the tree branches to try to break them, 
to create a tiny hole we can slither through, but they barely bend. I watch his body twist with the effort, and I think of his back, how we threw it out just a month ago, how sore he'll be tomorrow. Come on, I call out to him. We won't fit anyway. Can we find someone with a chainsaw? We do. John, whose family has lived on the island for so long, there's a road named after them. And Karen, a carpenter and cabinet maker who installed my dad's new floors, are out roaming the roads in their trucks. They're taking the down trees apart meticulously, mid-storm, and marking them with fluorescent orange tape. Karen lives out our way. She'll take us back, my dad says. We meet trees along the road, and as my dad and Karen cut through the thick trunks and pull at the pieces, I sit frozen in the passenger seat, feeling trapped by the car, the trees, my inability to control the wind. When we're a few houses away from home, Karen peels off down her road, and my dad starts talking about how lucky we are. The adrenaline is radiating off of him, but all I feel is wary. We're by our neighbor's house, close to home, but chainsawless, when we see the biggest trees of all blocking our way. It's at this point I realize I'm not special, not anointed or indestructible, just small. We can leave the car here, my dad says slowly, grab the suitcases and crawl under the trees. It's not a long walk. God, no, I think. But a pair of headlights appear through the gaps in the tree trunks. Let me see who it is, he says. When my dad leaves the car, I lose it. It starts with hyperventilation, then breathless sobs. The forest is so tall on both sides of me, and the roots that I thought were so sturdy now seem so fragile, and they could give way. They could give way, and a tree could just crush me, and all I would see if I saw anything would be the trunk racing towards me, and then maybe if I was lucky I'd die instantly, but probably not. Probably a branch would puncture me, and I would bleed out, and how would a helicopter even be able to fly in this storm? They'd never get me to the hospital. I'd die a slow death. I'm choking on my sobs and my thoughts by the time my dad comes back to the car. But he's excited. It's Jeremiah and his chainsaw. But then he sees my face. Oh, oh no, sweetie. He looks down at me. It's okay, it's okay, we're almost home. He closes the door to go help, leaving me alone to fill the car with panicked tears. It feels like seconds and years until Jeremiah finishes hauling away the blockade. I watch him work and I think about how he's just a year or two older than me, but he's coming alive while I'm shrinking. As we pass him, he's going off to find more trees to conquer. My dad rolls down the passenger window to say thank you again, and I hide my tear-streaked face in my jacket sleeve. When we get home, I lie on the couch in my parka, hood up. I can't say anything as my dad apologizes to me. It's okay that you felt scared, he says. It's completely understandable. We got off the island the next day, the 21st. There was a four-sailing wait at Schwartz Bay, even with the extra boats. My dad didn't go back to Saturna until after New Year's. His power was out for eight days. His leftovers went rancid in the freezer. His phone just came back in mid-January. In Vancouver, I watched the news roll in. The boats that broke loose in White Rock, crashing through the pier and leaving a man stranded on the other side. The generator for Nanaimo's water plant failing, putting it out of commission for 12 hours. I thought about all the stories I'll never hear. Each of the 756,000 people who lost power, who had to change their Christmas plans, who had trees puncture their roofs or crush their cars, who realized how little they could control. Did they feel as small as I did in the face of the storm? Most of them got their power back in the first 24 hours, but there were people in remote areas, like my dad and me, who took days and days to reach. In some places, BC Hydro had to send helicopters out to survey the damage because the roads were impassable. 1,900 spans of wire came down in the storm, 500 on Salt Spring Island alone. 
Hydro had to deal with 5,800 trouble calls, and average storm seas 300. It was the storm of the century, one for the history books, except it won't be. I wish I could say the December 20th storm was a freak accident, that I'm not afraid to go to Saturna again next winter, but the climate is changing, even for those of us who feel untouchable. While storm frequency is hard to project, the number of storms BC Hydro has responded to has tripled in the last five years, and the number of customer outages during major storms has increased from 323,000 customers in 2013 to 1.18 million in 2017. My dad has a chainsaw now, tucked in the back of his trunk. I get scared when I think of him using it. 70 years old, out in the wind and the sideways rain, hacking away. He is a superhero. Of course he would want to be helping his community. When he bought his house on Saturna, he wanted the remoteness and isolation. Now I think of how untenable his situation could get as the storms get worse and worse and he gets older. He thinks about this too, but he's doubled down. He loves this place. It's home. If he could go back and change his mind, he wouldn't, he told me. I know my dad. He takes risks for the things he loves. That scares me too. My dad will be more prepared next time. He'll have a backup to his backup system, enough food and water to last for weeks, and of course the chainsaw. Maybe he'll work towards going completely off the grid, in case of apocalypse. And I'll worry every time I call him and get the busy signal of a dead phone. Thank you. I think um, if people can, they should definitely check out the images that that go along with the story because they really, they really, they're really beautiful, and they're from all different people as well. Hey. Yeah. Um, I actually got so many more photos than this, but these were just a couple that my editor chose um, that were taken by Deborah Gibson, who is one of my dad's neighbors. So those are some kind of storm photos from over the years on Saturna. And there's also a photo of my dad that I took. And uh, and there's a, a photo um, from Ingrid Gaines of, uh, of a tree on the road. I got a lot of photos of kind of the the devastation on the island after because I think as I talked about in the piece the storm was just very unique like they're very used to high winds on Saturna and it's not usually a huge deal especially in the winter but they usually are just blowing from one direction and the trees are very adapted to withstand winds from that direction but this storm was different because it was coming from three directions and kind of swirling around and so it it really like uprooted trees that aren't usually uprooted during storms and then the other thing was that there had been so much moisture from all the precipitation leading up to the storm that the ground was just so soft that the trees it wasn't like they broke off they just the whole root system came up and they just would like tip over Mm. so there were so many more trees down than usual which is part of the reason why my dad and I got into such a dangerous situation was because my dad felt like he had been through so many storms like that um, where the trees didn't come down very much, like maybe you know one or two really small trees or something. But this was so many trees. Like as soon as we went out onto the road, there were so many, and they were coming down all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks from like the pictures like a whole, and it sounds like a whole nother scale than people are used to on the island there. Um, I wanted to ask you what your favorite part was about writing this piece. Yeah, writing it was a really interesting experience because I had such a clear memory of the whole visit out to Saturna really because it had 
culminated in the storm and so it was so stark in my mind everything that happened because actually before this um storm there was sort of like a smaller storm um where our power went out for about a day and that was when we realized it wasn't really a day it was maybe like like an evening um but anyway that was when we realized that my dad's backup system wasn't working um but then that storm was over and it hadn't really been that bad. We didn't go out during it. It was kind of in the evening and at night. And so we thought everything was going to be fine. So anyway, in my original draft, I it felt like I just had to expunge this whole story out of me about everything that happened. I was just including way too much. This piece ended up being around 2,000 words and um, that was kind of what I was assigned for the story. And the feedback that I got on that draft just from my friends and stuff and people in my creative writing class was that it was, it wasn't scary. Like they were kind of like, I don't get why you were so scared. This doesn't sound that scary. Um, And so I think for me, my favorite part about it is I've never felt before like I could write very poetically. And I think this piece just challenged me so much. Like I needed to tell it poetically because that was the only way to convey how, um, how intense the storm was and why it kind of culminated in me having this sort of panic attack in the car and everything. And so, yeah, it just really forced me to work on those aspects of my writing, which as someone who's been sort of like a news reporter for like a lot of my short journalism career was really a challenge, but I'm happy with how that part turned out. I really like how you described the like the like canopy of like trees on the road. It sounds like it sounds so magical and just like in the like in an instant turns to like this like crazy like nightmare. Um, I also think um, when you were reading that, I was thinking about how um, like you as a person as well. I remember you recently telling me just like like some people are really outdoorsy people. And some people <laughs> like to be at home with the, their blanket and their and the fire. I think that's a huge difference between my dad and I because he's someone who just loves adrenaline. Like, I just hate um, simulated, like, death experiences is <laughs> probably what I would call it. I, I'm okay with roller coasters, but I hate, I hate, like, downhill skiing or mountain biking or things where it feels like you're basically purposefully putting yourself in a near-death situation. But my dad loves that kind of thing. Um, And I really felt that difference between us when we were going through this experience. And I think that's why he commented on how calm I was being, because I was really... I trust my dad a lot, and so I really thought, you know, whatever, like, he knows best, which, I mean, he probably knew better than me, but... He's also a risk-taking person. And, uh, yeah, so it, it was scary. And I think a lot of the comments I received on this article were about, like, oh, this girl needs to toughen up and be more like her dad. Um, you know, she needs to get a chainsaw. And, like, wh- how old is she, like, 10 years old? Why isn't she getting out of the car and going to help? But I kind of can't communicate how ineffective I would be at helping in this situation. Um, I I get it and I kind of wish that I was the sort of person who would be able to take charge but I talked about this with my dad after but you know if you don't know what you're doing in a storm like that if you're not someone like Karen or John or Jeremiah in the story who know how to use a chainsaw 
know how to take apart a tree safely um, or like deal with wires and stuff like that, it can be even more dangerous to get involved. So I think the people who are sort of criticizing the narrator for, um, I guess, being sort of a damsel in distress. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't live on Saturna. I feel like if I did live on Saturna full time with my dad, it would definitely be something I would need to think about a lot more. And it's something he has to think about a lot now. Uh, but there are people on that island who are very outdoorsy. They're like people who use chainsaws for their jobs and they've been through storms like this. Uh, so they're really, they're really brave and they help the community so much because there were other cars on the road too. And those people along with my dad and I would have been actually completely trapped during the storm if it weren't for those people. It's just a really different lifestyle than living in the city, I think. Um, another thing, uh, I don't know if you have ever read, like, some Amitav Ghosh. No, I don't okay. think so. It, like, really reminded me of this one, like, article that he wrote. And it's, like, he he's in India, and uh, he, like, actually is, like, standing where, like, a tornado touches down. Oh, my gosh. Um, and it's one of those things that you're, like, that could never, like, actually happen yeah. to me. But then it does, and, and you're, like kind of like I'm sure that like contributed at least a little bit to like that like feeling of like shock it sounds like you kind of were feeling yeah yeah it so much of it was that I think and just I really tried to get across the feeling that I realized that I wasn't special and that I was really at the whim of nature I guess and the winds and the trees it just felt like a statistical probability question. Like what, you know, if you're in a car on the road and trees are coming down at this speed, um, this frequency, like what's the likelihood that you will get crushed in your car? Um, That's just how it felt to me. I think with the piece, I just wanted it to be kind of a warning to people, especially who live in isolated communities I think like Saturna is Um, but even just in general even in cities and everything this is going to be something that we're going to have to deal with a lot Um, you know the Fort Mac fire things like that Um, none of us are special and we will probably all be touched by climate change in some way in our lifetimes and so just being prepared and not doing things that are kind of dumb like I just felt like going out in the storm looking back at it was dumb but we didn't know better and I remember coming back and I was just like why did we do that but we just thought you know like let's just go to the ferry and see if it's running it's Christmas yeah let's go. <laughs> like I just want to get off the island and go home and see my mom you know but the circumstances were actually so much greater than that and I kind of had no idea until it happened and I think something that was so surprising was that it really seemed like my dad had no idea because to me he's just someone who's kind of like wise and all-knowing and he's lived for 70 years doing kind of crazy stuff. Um, so I thought we we would definitely be okay and we were okay but it was kind of a close call. I'm really thankful to the Tai to, for um, assigning this piece to me. Yeah and I'm just like a huge fan of the work that they do. So, so well, we're really proud of you for for putting yourself out there and writing this really personal and like um, engaging story of 
like the experience that you had this past Christmas. <laughs> Thank you. And we're yeah. glad we we're glad that you that you were able to come back to Edmonton <laughs> um, and share it with us. So that is all the time that we have for uh, this week. To hear more stories and conversations like the one we just had today, visit our website at terrainforma.ca where you can listen, share, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Spotify as well. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM located in Edmonton, Alberta, which is part of Treaty 6, the historic territory of the Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples who continue to live and gather here and who continue to influence the stories we make and our understanding of the land around us. A big thank you to our contributors this week, Hannah Cunningham, Charlotte Thompson, and Elizabeth Dowdell. We've been your hosts, Sophia Osborne and Amanda Rooney. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next week right here on Terra Informa.